Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Chasing the Moon on PBS. Tune in or stream Monday, July 8th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I am Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 25th. Today, the TV personality who speaks Trump's language, members of Congress who experienced gun violence, and the new faces of college baseball. So who is Janine Pirro? Who is Janine Pirro? Sarah Ellison writes about the media for The Post. Janine Pirro is the host of Justice with Judge Janine on Fox News on Saturday nights. Breaking tonight, President Trump postpones his mass deportation plan and gives Congress a chance to fix the ongoing immigration crisis. Hello and welcome to Justice. I'm Judge Janine Pirro. She is one of the president's longest standing friendships. No collusion, no obstruction, full cooperation. Enough lives have been damaged, enough reputations ruined, enough families destroyed. She is in many ways a mirror image of Donald Trump in terms of her political evolution, in terms of her love of the camera, and in terms of just her whole manner and the way she talks and interacts with other people, that she's a kind of perfect figure for the moment. He is the first president in a generation willing to tackle America's worsening, intractable, out-of-control problem, and he's willing to do so single-handedly if he must. She grew up in New York, and she is the daughter of Lebanese-American immigrants. She went to law school and At law school, she met her husband, Albert Pirro, and the two of them settled down in Westchester. Very soon after, she became an assistant district attorney, and that was the beginning of her legal career. And she always talked about growing up that she didn't dream of being married. She dreamt of being in a courtroom. And early on in her career, she was extremely popular with suburban women in Westchester County. Janine Pirro essentially started the first office designated to women who were domestically abused. And up until that point, it was this was an issue. Domestic abuse was something that was handled in family court. And so Westchester had one of the, the first places that was designated to dealing with this in criminal court. So she develops this reputation as a legal advocate for women. Right. I mean, she's very tough on crime, but on a particular type of crime, which is really defending women and going after the men who have abused them. And what I want to tell all of the battered women out there is that domestic violence gets worse in intensity, frequency, and severity as time goes on. I have fought for battered women, and I've tried their homicide cases down the road. And so Janine Pirro develops this this reputation as a real advocate for women. And there are people that I spoke to from her career early on who really remember her absolutely in this way. And then her career takes a turn toward television. I mean, it's interesting. Her career in television starts 
pretty early on in her legal career. And one of the features of the way that she prosecuted cases was to appear on television and talk about them. And looking at this from, from a prosecutor standpoint, how significant is it and, and how credible is it and what's your experience using this kind of evidence? It's very significant uh, evidence. It's, it's almost like when you say it's a genetic fingerprint, it's almost, it's almost like the finger of God pointing down and saying if the, this is only one in, in nine billion people, then for sure it's the person whose blood we're looking at. In terms of this case, it's a circumstantial case. DNA evidence is absolutely devastating to the defense. Janine Pirro was criticized for that because up till that point, a lot of prosecutors didn't spend a lot of time going on Geraldo Rivera or Nightline. She chose to essentially prosecute cases in the media. And some of the people that she was prosecuting those cases on behalf of were very grateful for that because they thought that was a really effective way for her to do that. In a situation like this where the legislature has not designated Alcoholics Anonymous as a religion or as a confidential communication worthy of that, uh, for a, an activist judge to come out and say that a confession to a brutal murder of two doctors uh, is inadmissible really impedes the truth-finding process. While she was going on the air to talk about all these things, she caught the eye of Roger Ailes, who is, of course the man who co-founded with Rupert Murdoch, the Fox News Channel in 1996. And she was someone, again, in that circle while she was district attorney and going on television, friendly with George Pataki um, and a lot of other New York politicians, Rudy Giuliani among them. Janine Pirro really developed a reputation as more famous than any other Westchester County district attorney had ever been. She ended up losing a series of political races, and then Roger Ailes brought her on as a contributor, and then she eventually got her own show on Fox News. And at what point did she start becoming friends with Donald Trump? So Janine Pirro originally meets Donald Trump through her husband, Albert Pirro, who is a real estate attorney and he's very plugged into the Westchester political establishment. He's a big fundraiser for Republican politicians. Donald Trump hires him for a planned project Trump wants to develop in Westchester County. And essentially, the friendship develops from there. Now, Donald Trump also has always had friendships with the individual district attorneys in the areas where he operates. It's a pretty useful relationship to have. But it starts with Albert Pirro. And Jeannie Pirro writes in her book about how she and Al used to travel on Donald Trump's plane to Mar-a-Lago on weekends. They would all go down there together. And, and there's one passage in particular where she talks about we were just like one big family, but, you know, thousands of feet in the air. We would watch movies and I would make popcorn. And, you know, we were such a it was such a familiar relationship that Donald Trump would ask me to heat up some meatloaf in the kitchen. And so there's Whoa. a lot of these details that she highlights in her book about how familiar the friendship was and also that their children knew one another. So this is a genuine friendship. This isn't just a situation where their career is kind of aligned for a short period and, and that's how they start to become friendly. Like they, they sound like they are real friends for a long time. They have been real friends for a long time. It's a mutually beneficial relationship, but Trump has told people that there are a lot of people who only want to be around him now because they can get something from him or some other kind of utilitarian need. And he feels that Janine Pirro is really someone who will give him advice and deal with him straight because they have this relationship and they are true friends. 
And it seems like Janine Pirro and Donald Trump both share quite a few qualities in terms of recognizing the importance of TV and the opportunity of TV and having a general love for the spotlight and love for the microphone. There's no question. They are both media animals and love the spotlight, know how to court the spotlight, know how to court controversy and welcome that. They're plain spoken. They speak in very similar ways. One of the things that was interesting about focusing on Janine Pirro was some of the turns of phrases are very similar between the two of them. She's also a New Yorker who has a sense of humor and gets Donald Trump's sense of humor. And when he moved to Washington, there was such a staid quality to his surroundings and nobody got him. And so I think that she's a bit of a lifeline. And I think that it's a real comfort for him to to have her around. But at the same time, even though they share a lot of qualities, they also have a lot of pretty major differences. I mean, Janine Pirro has built a career on being considered a champion for women's rights and a legal advocate for women. And President Trump has at many turns been dismissive of things having to do with women or has said demeaning things about women. How does Janine Pirro square that? She was one of the very few people who came out immediately after the Access Hollywood tape was released and defended him. The comments are shameful and cringeworthy. The words are disgusting, devastating, and embarrassing. It's the kind of locker room and frat house talk that personally infuriates me. But guess what? I still, without a doubt, support Donald Trump. You have to remember that Janine Pirro has just come off a summer where she was defending Roger Ailes, who was an accused sexual harasser at Fox News. And one of the things that Janine Pirro did was defend him to the end and attack the women who were accusing Roger Ailes of sexual harassment. So she has a really interesting and useful role as a woman who can draw on her history of defending women and advocating for women by being able to, in her mind, distinguish between good men and bad men. And so there's a list of men that she has defended in recent years, including Roger Ailes and including Donald Trump, who she's able to say, listen, I have credibility on this issue because I've spent my career going after real abusers and real perpetrators of violence. These are upstanding men. She said about Donald Trump that he's a true gentleman. She's had a million interactions with him and his family. In fact, she's been able to kind of say, okay, so Donald Trump has not been accused or convicted of pedophilia. And I know what that really is like because I've gone after those cases in my career. She's able to make those distinctions. And you've reported that she has been considered for a role in the White House. Yes, she and Donald Trump had conversations about how to bring Janine Pirro into the Justice Department at a senior level. My reporting indicates that that move was essentially blocked by Jeff Sessions. And while that was something that was initially seen as regrettable by Janine Pirro, she has now come into her own on the outside of the White House in such a full way. And for the president, he sees her as such an important voice on the outside. And she sees her role as so unburdened by the kinds of strictures that you have 
when you are actually part of an administration, just look at Kellyanne Conway and what she's not supposed to say. Jeanine Pirro has really come into her own on the outside. And and my reporting indicates that that Donald Trump and others see her as more useful on the outside than she would be if she were part of the administration. Interesting that, that she is more powerful by being on TV rather than inside the administration and that she is in a better position to support the president. Correct. And I think that's one of the most Trumpian and fascinating elements of her story, which is that she is made for this moment. She wouldn't be the only person you could look to to say this person has more influence by being on television than they would be in this administration. I mean, this is a president who really takes a lot of cues from what happens on cable news. And so occupying that position for her has been a real source of power. Sarah Ellison writes about the media for The Post. Guys, has that guy been shot? Is he okay? Is anybody, talk, anybody talking to him? Two years ago this month, a gunman opened fire at a Virginia baseball field. Four people were injured, including Congressman Steve Scalise. Many lives would have been lost if not for the heroic actions of the two Capitol Police officers who took down the gunman despite sustaining gunshot wounds during a very, very brutal assault. So it really has cemented Steve Scalise's view. He already was a proponent of the Second Amendment and gun rights. This has only hardened that for him. Rhonda Colvin is a Capitol Hill video reporter for The Post. The gun debate is a fixed debate in Congress. It has been for decades. However, there is a small club of representatives and senators who have experienced gun violence in a very personal way, and I wanted to see what their worldview is. Rhonda profiled three current lawmakers who have been directly affected by gun violence. I spoke to Representative Jackie Spear. She represents a district in California. What I can't stand is the hypocrisy. I also spoke to Steve Scalise, who is the current minority whip in the House. It clearly was people with guns that saved my life. And I spoke to Representative Lucy McBath, who represents a district in Georgia. I actually kind of talked to him throughout the day. And I, and I know I say to myself, okay, Jordan, don't laugh at me, you know, but I think about him all the time. Scalise is a Republican. McBath and Spire are Democrats. And Rhonda says that for all three lawmakers, their personal experience with gun violence has colored their philosophy and their policy on firearms. For Lucy McBath and Jackie Spear, what were their experiences with gun violence? Representative Lucy McBath lost her son to gun violence when he was parked in a convenience store parking lot in Jacksonville, Florida. He was listening to music that another driver in the car next to him found offensive, and and the man shot into Lucy McBath's son's vehicle. He was shot three times, and the shooter left the scene. He ended up going to his son's wedding shortly after that. And uh, found out later that uh, Macbeth's son had died. And then, you know, a trial ensued. There were two trials, actually. And he was finally found guilty of murder. Seven years ago, 
my son, Jordan, was violently torn from my life, a victim of a gun in the wrong hands. Today, I join my colleagues and former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords to prevent more families from facing the horror and heartbreak that is brought on by gun violence. Even if we look back to her campaign, she, before the campaign, she was a known gun reform advocate. She traveled as a part of Moms Demand Action. She she definitely was already in this space before running for Congress. And she says it's the the area that Congress is missing and needs to strengthen more, is looking at bills that would have stronger background checks and also bills that would deal with people who are already exhibiting some sort of violent traits that we need to know about those people and they should not have the access to guns that others who might just be using them for collection or for shooting sports do. I know that I've been brought here for a purpose and a reason. And that is the reason why I'm on this mission, because I understand the mantle that I carry. I understand that there's so many people that are counting on me. Not that they believe that I alone can make it right, but they know that I will champion for them. They know that I will fight for them. They know that I will not let this issue die. And then tell me about Jackie Spears' experience with gun violence. Jackie Spear was an aide for Leo Ryan. He represented the district she now represents in California. At the time, uh, the Jonestown cult, uh, there was a leader, Jim Jones. He, in the 70s, had developed this, uh, well, cult or commune in Guyana. And uh, Leo Ryan took Spear with him and a few other members of a congressional delegation. They did an investigation. They talked to people at Jonestown. And when they left... Associates of Jones met them at the airstrip that they were waiting for their flight back to the U.S. and opened fire and shot them. I know my parents, who are now past, would have preferred not to have endured that. I would have wished that that pain did not um, happen to them. But for me, I mean, as as deformed as my body is, as um, challenging as it was. Um, to go through a single life dealing with the the scars, I'm actually grateful for them. Representative Leo Ryan, he was killed in that, and Jackie Spear was left on the airstrip. She waited 22 hours uh, before help arrived. At a very early age, I was 28, I got one of life's most important lessons, which is it, nobody's guaranteed it tomorrow. And... It has allowed me to not be afraid to take on issues. What is it that you support when it comes to gun policy? I support the Second Amendment, and I support common sense gun violence prevention measures. I support an assault weapons ban. And having experienced the devastation associated with automatic weapons and surviving, which I probably never should have, you don't need an assault weapon to kill Bambi. You just don't. So what did they say about how their experiences have helped shape their views on on guns? Well, one thing that they all agree on is that something does need to be done. What that is is very different for the three of them. For uh, the minority whip, Steve Scalise, he believes that 
more emphasis should be on strengthening the laws that already exist. A little over a year ago, we passed a bill to fix the NICS system, uh, the instant background check system. There are a lot of loose ends that weren't being connected uh, in the mental health uh, databases. A lot of states weren't linking up. And so if somebody had mental issues in a state where they're not allowed to buy a gun, sometimes that wasn't getting fed into the national system. Because he was the majority whip at the time, he did have a security presence. And it was a Capitol uh, officer, police officer, who used his gun and shot the shooter that came on the field. Luckily, there were people with guns to counter and confront him and ultimately take him down. And, and that's the reason I'm alive today. So it really has cemented Steve Scalise's view. He already was a uh, proponent of the Second Amendment and gun rights. This has only hardened that for him. It's interesting that it sounds like for all three of them that in some ways focusing on legislation related to guns was kind of a coping mechanism after after they experienced gun violence, that it was a thing that they could focus on, a thing that they had control over. It very well could be. The tragedy, the the emotion, the physical issues that go on after that would inform you um, and sort of push you to try to do what you can to alleviate that pain for anybody else. So yeah, I'd, their worldview on guns have to be different from any of ours. Like we have our stance on it, but if you are a person who's actually been shot by a gun and almost lost your life or lost your son and know he'll never be back, that will always be in the forefront of your mind and whatever whatever you do. And then even if you have three different people in positions of power that have had somewhat similar experiences in, in, in experiencing gun violence firsthand, that doesn't mean that they're going to see eye to eye on what the solution is. One of the common themes that I heard in each interview, whether it was on camera or off while we were talking, while we were setting up, they all kind of admit that everyone who comes to Congress comes with different backgrounds and different belief systems. And you have hundreds of those people coming and trying to figure one issue out. How does that get solved? They all are very aware that their view may not be the next person's view. But again, how do you, how do you solve anything when everyone's coming to the table with very, very different ideas? Rhonda, thank you so much. Thank you. Rhonda Colvin is the Capitol Hill video reporter for The Post. The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Chasing the Moon on PBS, the epic story of the moon landing. This is the most audacious undertaking that man has ever attempted. It's as if you were there when it happened. I understood what it meant to smell fear. Experience the making of history. The computer was overloading. It was touch and go. Like you never have before. Everybody felt they had a piece of it, and they did. Chasing the Moon on American Experience. Premieres Monday, July 8th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. And now, one more thing. Tonight is Game 2 of the National Championship for College Baseball. Michigan's the underdog. Historically, the Wolverines haven't been good at baseball, and this year they've put together a really strong season, and now they're one of the surprise contenders of the tournament. I'm Jacob Bogage. I write about sports for The Washington Post. Michigan is playing Vanderbilt, a historically good team. 
But Jacob says that there's something that makes Michigan stand out. Michigan's team is one of the most ethnically and racially diverse teams in college baseball, which is significant because college baseball is 77% white. Only 6% of college baseball players are black. Michigan's team on the field looks different. Of the 35 players on their roster, seven are African-American. But in the lineup they put on the field, of the nine players they put on the field, four are African-American. That's like half the lineup. The coach of the Michigan team is Eric Backich. It's not about a certain race or a certain ethnicity. It's just about providing opportunities for kids around the country that couldn't afford it otherwise. So Eric Backich has spent his entire career in college baseball, and he's always been linked to Tim Corbin, who's a legendary coach at Vanderbilt University. And Tim Corbin's had this philosophy of recruiting very hard, recruiting in every place where there are good ball players, and that's yielded diverse rosters over the years. We try to be as exhaustive in our search as we possibly can to find the best baseball players who happen to be good students, and in some cases, find kids that maybe can't afford that select travel ball team or can't afford that national showcase that costs, you know, a thousand or two thousand dollars. So when Eric Backich was able to take over his own program as a head coach, he instituted some of the same mentalities of using Major League Baseball sponsored diversity initiatives or uh, recruiting athletes from inner cities branching out in ways that other college baseball coaches may not to find the best players. Other coaches around the country have definitely noticed Eric Backich's method of recruiting, but they've been slow to pick it up themselves. So there are encouraging signs about the way coaches want to present more opportunities. Now we just have to go out and see them do it. Jacob Bogage writes about sports for The Washington Post. That's it for today's episode. If you like listening to Post Reports and want to know how to support the work that we do here, please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. We're offering listeners a special discount on a digital subscription. Get unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.